Hello, and welcome to the Journal of American History podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Marina Meekum, editorial assistant for the Journal of American History and PhD candidate in history at Indiana University. In today's blogcast episode, we're taking a look at Avery Dane Griff's article, Digital Queers, How Computers Transformed LGBTQ Life in the United States, first published in Process, a blog for American history on June 29th, 2023. Much discussion of modern social justice movements in popular media focuses on the role of social media as organizer and catalyst. Twitter is credited as the key organizing platform in both the Arab Spring protests and Black Lives Matter, for example, which found popular adoption during the 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri, following the shooting of Michael Brown. And increasingly, both historians and the general public view such digital communication as important archival material. For example, six days after the protest started, software developer Ed Summers began collecting an archive of all tweets mentioning Ferguson. Yet, while social movements' use of digital tools seems to be a modern phenomenon, the importance of digital communication to understanding movement organizing predates the rise of social media. As historian Ian Milligan has argued, any attempt to seriously study historical events like 9-11 or the dot-com bubble and subsequent crash without using digital board materials such as email, digital photographs, and web archives would, as he said, quote, either be impossible or poorly done. And of course, these new documents also call for new methods of analysis. Building on Milligan, Avery Dame Griff argues that born digital materials are particularly important for studying LGBTQ history since 1980. LGBTQ individuals, particularly those working in technical fields, quickly recognize digital communications value. Communicating via a computer reduced the risk of outing or retaliation and the technology allowed those without a local queer community to stay connected. Moreover, content produced and circulated via computer didn't require the approval of a publisher or distributor, and its reach was only limited by one's ability to access a computer and modem. These features were especially important for transgender individuals and organizations who used digital tools to organize and connect at previously impossible scale and speed. The Bulletin Board System, BBS, was a key platform for LGBTQ users. Functionally, a BBS was a server that allowed users with the required equipment, a microcomputer, modem, and an open phone line to dial in. Once logged in, users could access a variety of features, including forms, chat rooms, games, and file libraries. Though the first BBS launched in 1978, they really began taking off in the mid-1980s. The first edition of the Gay and Lesbian BBS list, first published on August 20th, 1988, and circulated monthly via Usenet until 1999, included 199 boards. For questioning users or those not yet out, the BBS offered a safe space for anonymous discussion and exploration. While some had national reach, most BBSs were primarily used by individuals within their area code. As such, they had deep connections to their local communities, facilitating everything from hosting fundraisers to a platform for political organizing. Political activists also recognized their usefulness by the mid-1980s, when AIDS-focused BBSs were launched. 
In the early 1990s, as grassroots organization ACT UP was organizing kiss-ins and other protests to draw attention to the government inaction on HIV-AIDS, individuals like Sister Mary Elizabeth, Ben Gardner, and Kiyoshi Kiramiya were using their respective BBSs to circulate key information to persons living with AIDS, their caregivers, and allied medical professionals. The contemporary transgender movement simply wouldn't be possible without digital communications, which allowed individuals and community groups to connect rapidly and on a large scale. These shifts didn't come without consequences, however. While early trans adopters of digital technology emphasized its cyber-utopian potential, widespread adoption ultimately re-entrenched the dominance of white, middle-class individuals within the transgender movement. Moreover, it also drove increasing disinvestment in the national and regional support groups that funded and fueled it. That widespread adoption came not with the BBS, which remained a relatively niche technology even within the community, but with the World Wide Web. By 1994, the World Wide Web had a variety of technical advantages compared to a BBS, including ease of use and always-on persistence. Its wider reach also allowed niche terminology like cisgender to reach a larger audience and see increasing usage throughout the mid-2000s. The web's impact was transformative for transgender organizations. Prior to the web, information largely circulated through the existing newsletter exchange network among smaller groups and through works published by nonprofits like the American Educational Gender Information Service, Aegis, or community presses like Creative Design Services. However, all of these small operations had limited financial and monetary resources. Most newsletter editors were volunteers who could put in upwards of 100 hours to complete a single issue. Digital publishing presented a variety of advantages for these organizations. In her 2017 essay about the Internet's impact on her work, longtime trans activist Dallas Denny vividly described how the advent of the Internet, quote, really changed everything for Aegis. Previously, much of her work as Aegis's sole staff involved a variety of procedural tasks like returning phone calls, mailing out information packets, and other materials, or physically hauling Aegis's informational inventory to conferences and talks. Yet, once Aegis's work moved online in 2000, there was, as she said, quote, no need to wait for days to receive information, no need to limit the amount of information provided. No real need to maintain an office in which to process transactions. There are no bills for printing or photocopying expenses and no need for paid staff or volunteers, except as required to keep the website running. In her view, quote, the advantages of this no rent, no electric bill, no typewriter ribbons or printer cartridges, no postage stamps, no salaries, no need to sell things or solicit money model were as obvious as 1994. No nonprofit could afford to ignore them, although many did. Small regional trans groups similarly embraced the website. Most relied on free ad-supporting services like GeoCities, which aimed to make website creation accessible to individuals with a variety of technological skill levels. While some of these sites could be little more than brochureware, others offered a variety of information and resources, including access to a monthly newsletter. 
Moreover, they allowed such cash-strapped groups whose advertising budgets were often limited to the occasional listing in the alternative weekly's classifieds page access to a mass audience. Lastly, being able to post an email address as opposed to a hotline number meant questioning information seekers could remain safely anonymous when they reached out. Unlike an answering machine, there was less chance the message might be intercepted by another member of the household. The number of group sites, however, was dwarfed by the explosion in personal homepages. The largest unofficial directory of trans homepages maintained by Portuguese cross-dresser Susana Marquez served as a key hub of connection with the wider trans web. The site, which Marquez regularly updated from around 1998 through 2007, included member sites for at least 62 countries, though most sites were created by individuals living in North America and Europe. In 2001, she listed 2,771 trans-related homepages within GeoCities' LGBTQ-focused West Hollywood neighborhood alone. The sheer size and variety of the directory gave users, particularly those not connected to an existing community organization, a sense of membership and belonging. Functionally, personal homepages were the antecedent to early social media profiles, establishing common norms such as graphical personalization, photo sharing, and parasocial sharing. For trans creators, having access to a platform they controlled allowed them far more freedom to explore their self-presentation beyond the limited generic conventions of written memoirs or the producer-controlled adversarial format of talk shows like The Phil Donahue Show or The Sally Jesse Raphael Show. On their homepages, creators discussed what being trans meant to them alongside any number of other interests. Moreover, as a hypertext document, the homepage could change alongside its creator to reflect their own shifting self-identification. Yet, as the reference to social media suggests, the homepage's popularity reflected a shift away from seeing trans identity as deeply connected to the wider movement and toward understanding it as movement-independent self-identification. This was particularly true for trans youth, who were almost entirely shut out of movement organizations. Digital communications were essential to the emergence of trans youth as a demographic category. Even if a trans teen wasn't able to be out in their day-to-day -day life, they could create a homepage that more accurately represented their identity and interests, which then became a springboard for networking with other youth in similar situations. Beyond just the format's wider impact, digital communication is one of the few types of archival records from this period written by trans youth. When they explore these homepages and other digital documents, queer trans youth can claim a place within their community's history. In Avery Dane Griff's class on trans social movements history at Gonzaga University, students explore an archived directory of trans youth homepages cataloged by the Wayback Machine. In their research, they discovered one of these homepage creators, Jennifer, had started as a freshman at Gonzaga in 2000. In that moment, their perspective shifted from seeing individuals within the archive as historical actors whose lives had few intersections with their own, to approaching the topic with a sense of historical wonder. What had it been like for the student to be a trans young person in 2000? How would the university and its institutions react then as compared to now? 
Jennifer's presence in the archive and Avery Dame Griff's students' reaction to her homepage points to the importance of such born digital archives for contemporary queer history. Without her homepage and others like it, it's easy to frame transgender identity, particularly among youth, as a contemporary fad. Moreover, studying such sources alongside pre-digital archival material not only highlights how digital technology transformed movement building for LGBTQ individuals, but also offers fertile ground for imagining new activist possibilities in a critical historical moment. Avery Dame Griff is a lecturer in women and gender studies at Gonzaga University. He founded and serves as primary curator of the Queer Digital History Project, an independent community history project cataloging and archiving pre-2010 LGBTQ spaces online. His new book, The Two Revolutions, A History of the Transgender Internet, tracks how the internet transformed transgender political organizing to, from the 1980s to the contemporary moment. It is available now from NYU Press. Music for this blogcast episode features King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band's 1923 recording of Mabel's Dream. King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band was one of the first Black American jazz ensembles to receive a recording contract from Paramount Records. In its early years, the band featured Joe Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Dodds, Honor Daughtry, Lily Armstrong, Johnny St. Sir, and Babe Dodds. Thanks for tuning in to the Journal of American History podcast. Follow us on social media to hear about upcoming full-length podcast episodes and more bite-sized blogcast episodes like this. 